0: Love Talk Radio.
1: up, what is up? All right, so today um, there's a lot of stuff to talk about. I'm probably going to wander into some minefields. I uh, I might have a couple contrarian takes today. Um, I'm not going to go full contrarian on you, <laughs> but there's a few like slight contrarian takes that we'll get to. We have... Um, more police brutality that I want to talk about. But really, I think the follow-up to that story is actually even perhaps the bigger part of the story. So we'll talk about that. We'll talk about um, the mayor of Minneapolis getting shamed out of a a protest. We'll talk about um, Fox News Double Standard when it comes to Drew Brees versus LeBron James. There's a lot to unpack there. Uh, We have right-wing radio hosts telling everybody what they really feel about this current moment. Uh, Colin Powell is going to vote for joe biden we have uh joe biden giving his um his version of hillary's deplorables comments in the eyes of many we have um statues being pulled down so a lot of stuff to get to today and without further ado let's get started we're going to do that with police brutality unfortunately these days there's a lot of it to go around Okay, so here we go.
2: So we have
1: another high-profile incident of police brutality that went viral. Um, So this happened maybe three or or four nights ago, and it it blew up. I mean, it went – I was watching the video on Twitter just explode. I think when I first saw it, it was 44,000 views – and then I would check in like every ten minutes. It went from like forty-four thousand to one point two million to four million. I was like, whoa! So it absolutely blew up. And um, the video itself is bad enough. I'm sure many of you have seen it already. This is a still image from it. But honestly, the follow-up to the story is just as bad because it really paints an ugly picture that has some unavoidable conclusions that are really, really uncomfortable, so um, here's the video, graphic warning up front, I know many of you have already seen this, but I'm going to have to show it here for the few of you who didn't see it, so graphic warning up front, if you have an uneasy stomach, look away, you know, fast forward like 30 seconds or whatever, but here's what happened in Buffalo, New York, That was hard to watch. That was hard to watch. I saw, you know, a bunch of opinions on that. Some people said they actually cried. Other people had that sinking feeling in the pit of their stomach. Um, it's ugly. So that guy's 75 years old. Seventy-five. He was pushed down. He was bleeding from his ear. Now, he is, I think, okay. So he didn't die. He was taken to the hospital. Originally, they said he's in serious but not critical condition. So I think he's going to be okay. I don't know exactly um, what happened that led to the bleeding from the ear. Obviously, the pushdown led to it. But I'm saying in terms of, like, did his eardrum burst? Like, obviously something happened that's really, really bad. So, I don't know if you caught all the little parts of of it there, but... So they push him down. One person looks like he's going to check to see if he's okay. Then the other cop stops him. And then out of all the officers there who saw it, you had one radio and say, let's get a medic. And then it appeared to me he kept it moving as well. So... Obviously, the jarring part of that video is that they shoved an old man to the ground and he was bleeding from the ear. But perhaps equally as disturbing is that they didn't really care. There wasn't like a moment of humanity and empathy and sympathy where it's like, oh my, whoa, whoa, are you you okay, sir? Talk to me. Follow my finger. You know, the thing that they do in the field. Like, there was none of that. So, as I said, I think the update to the story is maybe, in some ways, even more disturbing. So, look at this. Fifty-seven Buffalo police resigned from riot unit in protest of officers' suspension. So, I believe it was two of the officers who were, like, most responsible for pushing the old man down. They were suspended. Immediately, by the way, because I told you it went massively viral on Twitter and online and it was covered everywhere, and so it was like immediate suspension of them, which is good. you know, a real, in all seriousness, probably needs charges, but they were suspended. Now, when everybody read this headline, 57 Buffalo police officers resigned, the first thought is, oh, they resigned in protest because of how brutal and vicious... The officers were who shoved down an old man and then were very nonchalant about it and kept it moving as if nothing happened, as an old man is bleeding from the ear on the ground. That's the first thing that everybody thinks. But then as you read on and and you see, no, no, they resigned in protest because they think it's unfair that the officers who shoved the guy down are being suspended. there are some ugly conclusions to draw from this man. And they're inescapable. I'm sorry, they're inescapable. So Jimmy Dore makes this point all the time where he'll show the videos of the police violence, and there are many of them with what's been going on recently. And it's not like up in the air of like, oh, here's a police officer going after somebody who's violently looting or rioting. No, it's always like a video of peaceful protesters who are clearly peaceful, and then the cops get violent. And what Jimmy Dore says is, Hey, here's the police, here's like the vicious, bloodthirsty psychopath doing the violence that we all see in broad daylight. He's the aggressive one. Let me ask you a question. Where's the good cop? Because presumably, what would a good cop do in that instance? If you're a human being with a conscience, what you do is you say to the person who's being vicious and crossing a line and doing offensive violence, you say, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't do that don't do that, or you report it to higher authorities within the police department and say, look, you know, hey, I'm, I'm one of the boys in blue myself, but look at what's going on here. That's unacceptable. That was an offensive use of violence. I'm not okay with it. In the same way that anybody would expect peaceful protesters to tell rioters and looters, like, hey, 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 that's not what we're about here. We're about peacefully protesting. In that same way, You would expect a good officer to restrain a bad officer and say, listen, you can't do this. You can't do this. This is unacceptable. But none of them did. Fifty-seven of them did the exact opposite. I'm going to resign because I don't think it was fair that you suspended them. They should have been not suspended after they shoved a 75-year-old man down. By the way, you see the same thing in the George Floyd video. What happened in the George Floyd video? You had one officer with the knee in his neck. I believe you had three on his back, his midsection, and his legs. And then you had the one who was just kind of standing there watching it all happen. And as George Floyd is saying, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, the one who's just standing there watching continues to just stand there and watch. I saw a good meme on Twitter that was like, <laughs> Republican Party is the one choking out George Floyd and killing him. Democratic Party is the one standing by and watching like this. So, again, to go back to that Jimmy Dore point, which has been just bouncing around my head for a week now with all these videos coming out, where is the good cop here? Where's the good cop? Because it's incumbent upon you to hold yourselves to that professional standard. And if one of you is a bloodthirsty psychopath and the others are presumably not, well then, okay, say something to the bloodthirsty psychopath. Hey, man, this is unacceptable. Hey, man, you can't do this. Hey, man, this crosses a line. Let's be serious here. But none of them do it. So it appears like the so-called good cops bend over backwards to cover for the bad cops, which means the good cops are really not that good. I mean, don't get me wrong. I do think there's a distinction between the person who is, like, the maniac, bloodthirsty psychopath who's looking to do violence on purpose. I think there's a distinction between that person and the person who doesn't do it but gives it tacit approval. But ultimately, they both still cross a line, and that's unacceptable. And that's really not what the public should be okay with. I mean, obviously we shouldn't be okay with this. So I... um. This has been a, a stark awakening moment for me. It really has. And I just, I'm floored at the fact that these 57 officers do not realize how this looks to everybody else in society. Like, even if you grant them, okay, you feel like they got a raw deal. The common sense thing to do is to not vocalize that publicly and to keep it to yourself. Because the second you vocalize that publicly, all of society goes, oh, you're an abuse enabler. So you might not be the person in the police department that's cracking skulls willy-nilly, nonchalantly, but you're an abuse enabler in that if you see it happen, you're not telling the higher-ups. You're not talking to the psychopath who did it. You're just going to ultimately fall back on, well, listen, we got the badge. We got the uniform. We got the gun. So what we do really is right. What we do really is the law. And even if we happen to make a couple of mistakes, well, they're just mistakes, and it's okay. They're not just mistakes, and it's not okay. And as I've said previously, violence isn't magically on a higher moral plane simply because you have a badge and a uniform and a gun. It's supposed to be the case that justice is blind, and there's equal protection under the law, so if a police officer breaks the law, it's the same as a regular person breaking the law, so there should be equal consequences doled out. They don't think of it like that, which is terrifying, because we need people to do the job who think of it like that, and who hold themselves to a higher professional standard. This is the exact opposite. I mean, I hate to say it, but it is absolutely correct. Those 57 officers who resigned, they shouldn't have been there in the first place. I'm glad they resigned. And... Nobody should ever hire them again, ever. No other police department should pick them up, ever, ever. Because what the good cop would do is stop the bad cop from doing wanton offensive violence, whether it's the George Floyd case, whether it's this case. You would say, I have a problem with this. That's what a good cop would do. If you're not doing that, you're definitely not a good cop. So, I, And I do believe this has been an eye-opening moment for a lot of people. It really has. So the approval rating of the police department two weeks ago, I believe, was 72%. And then last week, there was another poll done on it. It had dropped from 72% to 61%, which means that 11% more saw the actions of the police department and said, Oh, oh, I don't like that at all. And the more this goes on, the more that approval rating will drop. So I think that this has been an eye-opening moment for a lot of people, and you're just stunned. There's a, there's a Twitter thread that I can't find now. I was looking for it again, but it was on my feed three days ago, maybe. It's all these violent police brutality actions, and the thread is like over 300 tweets long. So there's 300 separate videos of police brutality, of offensive violence on the part of the cops. And ones that are not, like, none of them were in there that were, like, questionable. It was all like, yep, that's police brutality. Over 300 videos. Now, I'm not saying this to excuse any instances of offensive violence from rioters or looters or what have you. I'm saying it because I'm against police brutality as such. Like, that needs to stop. And it's incumbent upon the officers to be more professional and to hold themselves to that higher legal standard and to de-escalate and to not look like armed, militarized thugs on the streets like an armed gang. Because that's what this is, man. Call it what it is. This is a gang being vicious and being ruthless and having no accountability whatsoever. 57 resigned, not in solidarity with the 75-year-old man who's bleeding from the ear. No. 57 resigned in solidarity with the officers who did that to the 75-year-old man. That says a hell of a lot, man, and as time goes by, I'm becoming more and more in favor of even more strict reforms to fix this problem, because the problem is deeper than I thought. The problem is deeper than I thought. I would go not just the campaign zero reforms. I would go beyond the campaign zero reforms, and I'll talk about some of these ideas later, but this is beyond unacceptable, and everybody needs to acknowledge that. Okay, next. So the mayor of Minneapolis, Jacob Frey, Fry, Frey, however you pronounce it, um, he showed up to a Black Lives Matter protest, and he was basically booed out of it after this exchange that you're about to see here.
0: shortcoming but I know there needs to be increased instructional report in terms of how the department operates. The systemic racist system needs to be revamped. Okay. The police union needs to be put in its place. And we need to make sure that everything from the union contract to the way that the arbitration functions to the way that our officers will function and the department for you? Hey! 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 Piss hey, 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 hey. hey. up! Piss up, y'all! Sit up! Jacob Fry, we have a yes or no question for you? Yes or no? Will you commit to funding Minneapolis Police Department? What do I say? We don't want no more police. Exactly. So if
1: you didn't hear that He he was asked if he supports defunding the police department and his response was, no, I I don't support the full abolition of the police department. And then they started chanting, go home, Jacob, go home. By the way, that video goes on for a much longer time. And he does this long walk where he's going through a lot of people where they're all chanting and it gets louder and louder and louder. And it's almost like you know it looked like kind of like a walk of shame in a way. Um, but now let's dive into the issue. So I have I have to admit something. I don't know what that means when people say that. Defund the police department. And when I try to look into it, I get different answers from everybody. So it's not it's not something that's intuitive that you could easily understand because when I heard originally defund the police department, I was thinking, okay, they want full abolition. They don't want any police at all. That's, that's what it sounds like to me. Now, some people say, no, that's not what we mean. Others say, actually, yeah, that is what we mean. So I don't know what it means when people say defund the police department. So if I was asked that question and I was in Jacob Frey's position, I'd be like, I don't know how to answer that because I don't know what it means. <laughs> what are you saying? Because it sounds like, do you want to abolish all police? And if that's the question, then my answer as well would be absolutely not. And... There's a question as to, like, even if you get rid of the police, well, something is going to take their place, which is effectively police. I mean, you can call it whatever the hell you want to call it. You can call it the First Responders Brigade or the Community uh, Protection Organization. You call it whatever you want, but effectively that would be policing. So I think that ultimately this comes down to a little bit of a semantics game in a way. because And just so everybody understands, this kind of worked in that, they're calling for defunding of police, and the protests are so strong all across the country. This happened in Minneapolis, the killing of George Floyd. So drastic action was taken. The They just voted to disband, I believe is the word they used, disband the police department. Now, again, does that mean that there will be no police? Absolutely not, because whatever you get rid of this police department you know, for, it will be replaced by some you know, organization that's effectively doing policing. So I feel like this is a little bit of a semantics game, and everybody needs to keep their eye on what's going to happen now in Minneapolis because, you know, the, the devil's in the details, and we have no details at this point except, oh, we're going to disband the police force. Now, some people are pointing to Camden, New Jersey as an example of, see, they, they kind of already did this. So there's two things that I have to say about it. The first thing is, do I support defunding the police as such in the strictest interpretation, which is let's have no police at all. My answer to that is absolutely not. Um, But the second point is actually more interesting, which is the idea of pushing for defunding the police. That has the upside of being such an extreme demand that it drags the Overton window back to the left, and you might actually get good, solid police reform that's absolutely necessary because you're shooting for the stars so you end up getting to the moon. You see what I'm saying? It's the same reason why when we talk about the Medicare for All debate, the left position should be, no, we want an NHS-style health care system, which is public funding of public institutions. It's all government. It is a government takeover of health care. And so if you demand that position, then the compromise position becomes – Uh, a single-payer Medicare-for-all system like the French system, where it's tax money, public funding of private institutions. So you still get the most important thing, which is all funded by tax money. So in terms of a political strategy, it's actually pretty wise because – and I'm not saying this is their goal, by the way. I think a lot of people calling for defunding police don't know what the hell they're calling for, and I think some of them calling for defunding police, like, literally want to totally get rid of all police, period, Um, but it has the massive upside of if you call for something like this, you might actually end up getting accountability in a way that makes total sense. So what I've run through, let me tell everybody what I support, because it's easy to say, oh, I don't support this or I don't support that. It's much harder to build constructive solutions. So for me, all the campaign zero reforms resonated with me. So the first one is, of course, end broken windows policing. The second one is we need community oversight of the police which holds them accountable. The third one is you need to have strict limits to the use of force, and really like a zero tolerance approach to that as well. Um, You need to independently investigate and prosecute the officers who do something wrong, because oftentimes the prosecutors who are supposed to go after the police are the ones who work with them every day and they never really go after them. Um, The fifth thing is community representation. That would make it a lot less likely that violence happens in the first place. The sixth thing is body cameras, film the police, zero exceptions, you turn it off a penalty of law. The seventh thing is obviously redo the training and, and put an emphasis on de-escalation. The eighth thing is end for-profit policing. The ninth thing is demilitarization of the police. Um, and the tenth thing is fair police union contracts. Now, I think that what they're, en- what they're gonna do in Minneapolis effectively breaks the police union contracts because they're disbanding the police. And in a way, kind of starting from scratch with a new police department, whether or not they get called police is a separate question. Um, So ultimately, these protests kind of worked in that sense, kind of worked in that sense. Now, the uh, things I would add um, on top of this is end the drug war, because that is kind of the green light that allows the harassment of poor people and and people of color. Um, I'm now in favor, after seeing all these police budgets across the country, I'm now in favor of cutting police budgets by 50%, which is the same thing that you saw with, uh, that I always talk about when it comes to our foreign policy, that we could cut it by 50% and still easily be the biggest military in the world by far. So it's you know total waste of money. Our welfare is is warfare in this country, and um, we need to, to roll that back. And then the other thing that occurred to me is what about a three-strikes-and-you're-out um, approach for complaints against officers? So it doesn't matter how minor the complaint is, if there are three, you know, complaints, allegations of police brutality, whatever it may be, it's three strikes and you're out. So you're done. You can't get rehired as a cop anywhere. Uh, cause really what we need, and it, it sounds bad, but it's also desperately needed. We kind of need a purge of the police departments in terms of getting rid of all the bad cops. And from what I've seen recently, you have the bad cops that are the vicious psychopaths who are doing the offensive violence, but then every single cop who's covering for that cop is also a bad cop because they're not saying, hey man, stop doing the offensive violence. They're covering for them. They're enabling them. So they need to be gone, too. I don't care if we end up functionally firing 85 or 90 percent of the cops in the country. You've got to do what you've got to do. They have to do their job right. So you can't defend either wanton violence or the cover-up of wanton violence. That's not acceptable. And then the other thing is, and I actually heard this, um, this one from Inside the M- or, or, uh, NBA on TNT. Um, Kenny Smith brought this up. He said, how about a police the police law where whatever whatever the worst charge is against an officer, every officer who's there gets that same charge. So take the George Floyd case, for example. You have the person who had his knee on the neck of George Floyd. He's most responsible for killing him, right? But the three that are on his back... And then also the one who's standing there and watching it and not saying, hey, you got to get off him. He can't breathe. Also, that guy would be charged with, in this case, second-degree murder. So what that does is it forces police officers to hold each other accountable. Where if you're there in the vicinity where another officer is committing an egregious crime, you have to stop them. Because if you don't, you will also be tried for that crime. So that's an idea that he brought up. I thought that's a brilliant idea. And I do think that's a way to kind of force them to hold each other accountable in a way that right now they're doing the exact opposite. So that cop who just pushed over in Buffalo, New York, the two who just pushed over 75-year-old man, he landed on the ground, his head hit, and he was bleeding from his ear. If all the officers around him got charged with the same thing, they're not going to do it again because they're going to say, oh, my God, if one of you messes up, we're all guilty. So if one of you commits first-degree assault, we're all guilty of that. We can't have you committing first-degree assault. I'm not spending time in prison, so it forces them to hold each other accountable. So um, anyway, the, these are the ideas that I like. It's funny because this is one of those instances where the first I heard it, oh, defund the police. I thought that's a little ridiculous because usually when you're doing these protests, you wanna you wanna have a message that's. So impossible to disagree with that you win over the overwhelming majority of the population. And when you look at the civil rights movement, that's a great example of it. You have Martin Luther King and you have everybody out there saying, equal rights. Like, that's what they're calling for. Hey, treat us equally. End segregation. That's bad. And it was such a powerful message. And they were so nonviolent that everybody started sympathizing with them. And he won over the heart of the population. And he won over the majority of Americans. So that's a philosophy in movements that I tend to agree with. Like, when we protest for Medicare for All, that's easy because the argument is, hey, everybody should have health care." So you're gonna, you already have the majority of the American people, and the more you're peaceful and the more you push that message, you're gonna get even more people. When I first read the, oh, defund the police thing, I was like, mm, that's too extreme for, for people. And I still believe that's too extreme for people, and I think the polls show that. But, but, the upside of it was, they're demanding something that sounds so extreme that it's like any kind of negotiation you can imagine. I'm going to stake out this extreme position, and then now the concessions start coming in, and the concessions are effectively meeting in the middle where all the good ideas rest when it comes to how to fight back against police brutality, how to reform these police departments, how to make them do what their original job is supposed to be. So uh, honestly, it ended up working out in a way. And so, you know, and who the hell am I to sort of micromanage and police these protests? No pun intended, saying police. Um, but who am I to um, sort of try to tweak the message if currently it's working? You know what I mean? So even though, even though I'm still confused as to what defund the police means, and even though I still think some people are saying, no, 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 defund the police doesn't mean defund the police. Okay, then why are you saying it? Some people are saying that and other people are saying, no, no, no I do mean defund the police in which case I don't agree with those people, even though I'm confused and a lot of people seem to be confused and there's a contradictory message, you can't argue with the results so far. And the fact that they're disbanding the Minneapolis Police Department kind of shows that it's working. And But again, just to be clear, they will absolutely be replaced by another organization that will do policing. They might not call it a police department, or maybe they will, I don't know. But it's going to do policing. So... We always need policing. Like, the idea of policing is just enforcing the rules and regulations that exist. That's all policing is. So as long as you have rules and regulations, you're going to need policing in one version or another. So that's going to be the case, which is why I initially was like, I don't understand. This just seems like a silly thing to argue for. But again, it worked out in that they demanded something so extreme that they were kind of met in the middle with good ideas that we all want anyway. So... Let's see. Let's see what happens moving forward. But, you know, again, I like all the campaign zero reforms, plus ending the drug war, plus cutting the budget 50 percent, plus three strikes and you're out for cops, plus police the police law where anyone in the vicinity is charged with the crime of what the worst cop is doing there. I think that all that is a way to really uh, create change for the better and make police departments do what they're supposed to do. All right, next. So NFL quarterback Drew Brees made some comments recently where he said, hey, I'll never agree with anybody who's disrespecting the U.S. flag. I believe he was asked that in the context of Colin Kaepernick and and what he did, and the current uh, protests going on around the country. Now, his comments blew up, and LeBron James responded to him on Twitter and basically said, like, come on, man, even at this late date, you still don't understand that this really is not about the flag at all. It's about peacefully protesting to try to stop police brutality to to shine a light on that issue. And... What happened was there was such a a, a powerful, long, strong backlash against uh, Drew Brees that he came out and he apologized. Now, usually, you know, I feel like the apologies are kind of forced and maybe a little silly. But in the case of Drew Brees, he wrote one out, and I thought, this definitely sounds like it's from him. It's not approved by a manager or, or an agent or whatever. So it sounded like it was from him, and it sounded like he meant it. So I was willing to semi, like, you know, oh, okay. This is actually a half-decent apology. You know, it's fine. Now, I'm in no position to accept the apology or not. I'm just saying from my perspective, it appeared like he seems to kind of get it now a little more because the backlash was so strong and you had LeBron saying something, but then you also had a lot of his teammates and former teammates came out and were like, you still don't get it, man? Like, really? You just saw what happened to George Floyd. You just saw it. You know, Breonna Taylor. You just, you, did you, are you living under a rock? Like, you see what's happening, so it's about that. And it seemed like he had a little bit of a light bulb moment. But anyway, I digress. Who knows? Maybe it's a, you know, a half-assed apology. But then Trump came after Drew Brees and said, oh, he shouldn't have apologized. And then Drew Brees responded to Trump and was like, no, actually, I should have. So this is, I mean, this is, it's all over the place. The debate, the fact that we're even talking about whether or not Colin Kaepernick was right at this date is ridiculous. Because obviously the continued police brutality, high-profile cases, is proving that he was right to shine a light on this issue in a nonviolent way. Because now they're acting violently, many many protesters. Now, most of them are peaceful, but then you have rioters and you have looters. And what's the talking point from the right when they see the rioters and looters? Oh, my God, this is unacceptable. If only these people peacefully protested, then I would support them. that's what Colin Kaepernick was doing, and you were against it. So you're full of it. So anyway, before Drew Brees apologized, before Drew Brees apologized, Fox News was defending him, you know, to the hilt, because, you know, they loved the whole, like, faux patriotism thing, especially if it could be used against the left in any way, shape, or form. So they were defending him like crazy, and Laura Ingram was one of those people. But now, remember... Laura Ingram is the same person who went after um, LeBron James back when he spoke up about another political issue. I don't remember what it was. Um, I think it had something to do with police brutality. And, um, or maybe it was something he said that was against Trump or whatever. But look at the comparison here. This is incredible. The comparison between how Laura Ingram treats it when a celebrity or, or an athlete speaks out and they're on the left versus on the right. Watch this.
3: It's always unwise to seek political
0: advice from someone who gets paid $100 million a year to bounce a ball. Oh, and LeBron and Kevin, they're great players, but no
3: one voted for you. Millions elected Trump to be their coach. So keep the political commentary to yourself, or as someone once said, shut up and dribble.
0: Well, okay. he's allowed to have his view about what kneeling and the flag means to him. I mean, he's a person. He has some worth, I would imagine. I mean, this is beyond football, though. This is totalitarian, totalitarian conduct. This is mm-hmm. Stalinist. And, by the way, on the streets of New Orleans, we're looking at live pictures, they're yeah. shouting, F. through breeze. Well, that's what, that's, that's what this moment has done. To the beautiful team spirit of the
1: New Orleans This is a great, he's a great Christian man. I mean, honestly, it's, it's incredible. It really is. The double standard, the rank hypocrisy. It's like, it's like she's not even trying. They are not even trying. By the way, that whole talking point, you got to immediately throw it out. Oh, if you're an athlete, stick to being an athlete. Or if you're a celebrity, stick to being a celebrity. You guys elected Donald Trump the reality star. You also elected Ronald Reagan, the actor. So you can't say, oh, these Hollywood people need to fall in line. That's what they need to do. Know your role. You pick the celebrities on your side, and you pump them out there. So obviously you have no principled stance against celebrities shouldn't be involved in politics or athletes shouldn't be involved in politics because the second they say some right-wing stuff, oh, my God, they're heroes to you. He's a person. He's allowed to have an opinion on stuff. He's a human being. What about LeBron? He's a person. He's a human being. Is he not allowed to have an opinion on stuff? Oh, he's he's not because he disagrees with me. Oh, oh, I get it. They disagree with you. Hey, shut up and dribble. If they agree with you, oh, is a person allowed to have his opinion. Free speech. The funniest part is that she said there, oh, it's totalitarian that these protesters are disagreeing with Drew Brees. What's totalitarian is you just said, LeBron is not allowed to talk about politics, but Drew Brees is allowed to talk about politics because you disagree with LeBron and you agree with Drew Brees. That's totalitarian. You're literally trying to shut up somebody that you don't disagree with. Now, thankfully, you don't have the power to enforce that. It, it really does show the kind of person that you are. And, you know, you could say it's, um, it's rank partisanship. You could say it's bigotry. However you want to categorize it, the fact of the matter is, Laura Ingram is, is dead wrong. She has no standards. She has no principles. It's pathetic. And it's like, you're not, you're not getting an open and honest discussion and dialogue. You're getting a bunch of idiots playing gotcha when you turn on Fox News and when you turn on MSNBC and CNN. Like, it's just a bunch of—Fox News is the propaganda arm of the Republican Party— MSNBC is the propaganda arm of the Democratic Party, and CNN, I would say, is the propaganda arm of the Democratic Party as well. They're just, it's just, their coverage is pathetic and will always be pathetic, and anybody could see through it from a mile away how terrible it is if you pay attention. And this is such a great example of it right here. Now, LeBron James, you know, caught this video, and then he, you know, responded. He was like, look at this. Look at this. Look how ridiculous this is. So um, now he's going around doing the more than an athlete thing and, He's been speaking up more and more on police brutality. Listen, that's wonderful. I totally agree with him. I think it's a good thing to do. Um, he did catch a lot of hell though, and I think rightfully so, when um, he he kind of buckled in the face of criticism of China, and was like, "Hey, man, everybody has their own opinions," um, because he's got a lot of you know business dealings with China. So people have, I think, correctly pointed out that, oh, you're so brave in criticizing our government and what's going on here, but you refuse to do that overseas when there's oppression going on overseas. Um, now, I'm sure he could counter and say, well, listen, I'm a citizen of this country, so I should be criticizing this country more so than, than any other one. But if you do have, like, business dealings with China and you're kind of letting them off the hook in, in a variety of ways, I do think that there's uh, fair criticism there. So But either way, fact of the matter is, look at how – quickly they flip on their standards they don't have standards this is the most obvious double standard of all time and instead of having the debate as it is like having the debate on the issues she has this meta debate of who's allowed to have the debate based on whether or not she agrees with them which is just like it's just so stupid and such propaganda and honestly she just batted her job Okay, next. So let's take a minute and check in with right wing radio hosts um, and see what they're saying at this crucial moment in history. Now, this guy right here, his name is Michael Savage, and he's special. I say that because years and years and years ago, I forget what year it was, I want to guess 2014-ish, I had actually created, like, a list of the worst of the right-wing radio hosts, and um, Michael Savage was number one. Number one! So that means he's worse than Rush Limbaugh, he's worse than Sean Hannity,
2: Think about how bad one has to be
1: (laughs) to be worse than Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, Glenn Beck. I mean, this guy is out of this world, okay? So he's weighing in on the protests happening around the country. And um, look at how he describes the protesters and what he wants to do.
3: farmers earlier called in the state national guard to bar black students from the school giving a little history that you didn't learn in your history book and you're going to see that the military not only has been called in but will be called in and should have been called in on saturday and those punks should have been put down like the like the feral dogs that they are
1: those punks should have been put down like the feral dogs that they are this is from a guy who fancies himself in favor of small government, liberty, freedom. Get the tyrannical jackboot of the feds off my neck. This is who this guy is. You flip the protesters here, you have some armed right wing people, all of a sudden, oh my God, they're heroes! Oh, they're heroes! Get the federal government away! Yeah! They're left-wing protesters, nominally speaking. Put down the feral dogs. That's what he... Put down the feral dogs. Does it matter that 98 99% of the people out there in the streets, probably more, are totally peaceful and just want police reform? Or at least that's the spark that got them out there? Nope. The fact that there are 1% to 2% who were violent... Put them down like feral dogs and use the military, as I've explained to you guys before, in detail, is a brazen violation of the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. In this country, we have freedom of speech, we have freedom of religion, and we have the freedom to protest, the freedom to protest. You can't call in the military to stop protesters. And by the way, again, I got a bridge to sell you if you think, no, 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 it's okay because the military will only target the violent people utter nonsense, utter nonsense. The military isn't even trained to do anything domestically, but if you bring them in domestically, I guarantee you the idea will be we have to stop all the demonstrations. That's our job. So look at how, they don't, they don't believe in anything. This is the same guy who will tell you on a Monday, I believe in the constitution. I believe in freedom. I believe in liberty. I believe in the first amendment. It's the left-wingers who are against the constitutional stuff. And then Tuesday he comes out there and says, oh yeah, let's, uh, let's Put them down like the feral dogs that they are. So let's have the government murder people. The same... These guys argue all the time that they need to be armed to stop federal government tyranny. That's why we need the Second Amendment, is to stop the federal government tyranny. And now you have an instance of federal government tyranny, and he's like, I support the federal government tyranny, and screw the people who are the freedom-loving Americans who are out there in the streets protesting.
0: so sad. It's so sad. It's so sad. It's so sad.
1: (laughs) Uh, You know, from an early age when I was following politics, it was obvious to me that uh, when it came to these right-wing talk show hosts and when it came to, you know, Fox News, they don't actually seem to believe in anything. They don't believe in anything. They're just like playing for the team of the Republicans or the Republican president. And so everything is twisted and put into that box. So it really has nothing to do with the higher conversation about standards and principles and policy preferences and how to improve stuff. No. And here you have it, man. It's going full authoritarian. But we shouldn't be surprised because he's done this before. If I'm not mistaken, he said we should nuke any. Muslim country. He's like, just pick one, nuke it. This is the guy we're talking about. That's one of the reasons he was number one on the list. But there's more than that. I mean, he's he's as bad as it gets. And there's another example of it right here.
3: Okay.
2: Okay,
0: next.
1: General Colin Powell spoke to CNN, and he came out against Trump and for Biden. In fact, he was asked flat out by Jake Tapper at one point, are you going to vote for Biden? He's like, yes, I'm going to. Um, now, you're not going to see that part, but... You are going to see him um, weigh in on Trump in a variety of ways. Let's take a look.
3: And uh, former Defense Secretary General Mattis said, quote, Donald Trump is the first president in my lifetime who does not try to unite the American people, does not even pretend to try. Instead, he tries to divide us. It sounds like you agree with that
2: you have to agree with it i mean look at what he has done to divide us forget immigrants let's put up a fence in mexico forget this let's do this he is insulting us throughout the world he is being offensive to our allies he is not taking into account what our foreign policy is and how it's being affected by his actions so yes i agree with you Allen. i agree with all of my former colleagues and remember i've been out of the military now for 25 years And so I'm watching them closely because they all were junior officers when I left. And I'm proud of what they're doing. I'm proud that they were willing to take the risk of speaking honesty and speaking truth to those who are not speaking truth. We've seen tens of thousands of protesters taking to the streets
3: this week in opposition to to racial injustice and police brutality. Mm -hmm. What's been your personal reaction to this moment? Do you think that the country is in something of a turning point?
2: We are turning points. I mean, the Republican Party, the President, thought they were sort of immune. They can go say anything they wanted. And even more troubling, the Congress would just sit there
4: and not in any way
2: resist what the President's doing. And the one word I have to use with respect to what he's been doing for the last several years is a word I would never have used before. I never would have used with any of the four Presidents I've worked for. He lies. He lies about things. And he gets away with it because... People
1: will not hold him accountable. All right, so... I mean, a lot of people are celebrating the fact that he came out and, and said, I'm voting for Biden, and he's slamming Trump. That last line there, oh, a word I wouldn't use for any of the other four presidents I worked for, is liar. And Trump is a liar, and he lies all the time. Yes, Trump is a liar. He lies all the time. Also, one of the defining parts of colin powell's career is that he lied to the united nations to get us to get them to be okay with us going into the war in iraq remember he held up a vial and said oh this is uh this is like yellow cake uranium or whatever and this is what saddam hussein is is has and he's he has weapons of mass destruction he's creating weapons of mass destruction and as the Bush administration famously said, we don't want to wait for the evidence to come in the form of a mushroom cloud. So, in other words, we don't have any evidence, but, hey, he might nuke us, and then there will be a mushroom cloud. So we need to act now before we can get evidence to prove that this is what he's doing. He held up a vial cynically at the U.N. and said, see, he's, creating, he's using this. He's creating this. He's, he's making uh, weapons of mass destruction. See, look what I'm doing. So, for Colin Powell, of all people, to go out there and say, oh, Trump's a liar, like, the most defining part of your career was a lie you told. Now, listen, best case scenario, it wasn't a lie, and he was just wrong. And, like, he was duped as well. But even even if you take that interpretation, we still got into an illegal and offensive war as a result of your actions. Have a little goddamn humility. Have a little self-reflection. Yes, Trump is a liar, and a bad liar at that. But every president you worked for is a vicious liar. Everyone. Sorry, but it's the truth. There's no doubt about that. So I think the thing that frustrates me is you do not have to rehabilitate the legacies of these former terrible presidents in order to slam Trump. Just slam Trump. Just slam Trump. Don't let all the others off the hook. Because then people watch this and go, well, I guess nothing matters then, right? Because we have former administrations that did torture, that opened Guantanamo Bay, you know, that waged illegal and offensive wars, that crashed the economy. And I guess none of that matters because Trump is bad, so I'm going to say that they're now good. But they're not good, and yes, they are all terrible liars. Getting us into an illegal and offensive war. He should, he should be ashamed to show his face in public at this point, man. But he's out there calling somebody else a liar. I mean, it's just, it's so beyond the pale, it's ridiculous. Let's stop erasing, stop erasing what other presidents have done, other people who've worked in these administrations, what they've done. Because Colin Powell is part of this corrupt elite establishment, which has screwed us over for so long. He's got the blood of innocent civilians on his hand, in, on his hands, namely the ones from Iraq. Now, look at the arguments he uses against Trump there. He says, oh, he's insulting us throughout the world. Of, of the list of things that Trump is doing that, like, hey, here's the terrible things he's doing, I could give you those, and I've given them to you a million times before. Insulting us throughout the world is not one of those things. That's him saying, oh, Trump embarrasses me. I'm a little bit more concerned about his 432% increase in drone strikes, which is killing innocent civilians. I think that takes you know, precedent over... Um, oh, my God, he's insulting us throughout the world. I'm a little more concerned with his 2017 um, tax cut bill and deregulation, which destroyed the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and gave 83% of the benefits of the top 1%. I'm a little more concerned about that. I'm a little more concerned about getting rid of the pandemic preparedness, you know, group in 2018, which obviously we saw how that worked out. Like, these are the things I'm actually a little more concerned about, thank you very much. I'm concerned about ripping up the Iran deal and bringing us to the brink of war with Iran. That's what I'm concerned about. So... The idea of, like, the things that he puts forth as to why he doesn't like Trump are not the reasons to not like Trump, which is frustrating. And he says, oh, he's defending our allies. I want to I offend Saudi Arabia. I want to offend Israel. You're not doing your job right if you're not offending them. Because they're bad, and they're wrong, and we cater to them nonstop. We need to not cater to them. Henceforth, insulting them. Insulting them is a good thing. So, again, the reasons he's using are terrible reasons. And then finally he says, well, Trump is not taking into effect what our foreign policy is. Now, I think the way that he means this is, oh, all the, when Trump always goes out there and talks about, you know, isolationism and getting out of the rest of the world, I think Colin Powell sees that and goes, that's dangerous. So in other words, I believe the argument from Colin Powell here is Trump is not hawkish enough. Trump doesn't believe in American leadership enough. The sense I get. Now, I could be wrong, and he could be saying, hey— He's not taking into effect where our foreign policy is and that, you know, he's doing too much war. But I don't think that's what he means. That's what I mean. I would not like him to continue to be in Iraq and Afghanistan and escalate in a thousand places and more drone strikes and, you know, tensions with Iran. I want to go in the opposite direction. I don't think that's what Colin Powell means. Now, the final point I'll make is this for people who are praising Colin Powell. Okay, so he says he's going to vote for for Biden. Good for him. Um, I've seen... Some folks say, hey, why are lefties going after Colin Powell? Well, I mean, I just gave you a million reasons why this is annoying (laughs) that that I just laid out. So, you know, see this segment as to why it's annoying. But beyond that, here's the main point, okay? Colin Powell is supporting Joe Biden because Colin Powell is a so-called moderate Republican. And he knows Joe Biden is also a so-called moderate Republican effectively in the policies he pursues so that's why people are like like this is a little bit gross because it says more about biden than it says about colin powell and what it says about biden is yeah he's the status quo guy he's the guy who's going to make the establishment comfortable he's effectively a moderate republican now you can make the argument hey that's still a lesser evil than trump trump being an extremist republican you can make that argument but let's not act like it's not totally understandable and reasonable as to why leftists are annoyed by this. Of course it makes sense. I'm annoyed by it. Of course it makes sense, because this is basically an admission on Colin Powell's part that I'm a moderate Republican and I view Biden as a moderate Republican. And obviously leftists are not going to be happy with a moderate Republican presidency, even if the, you know, the other option is an extremist Republican, we're still going to go, no, I want you to be on the left. So that's why the left is upset by this, and I think that makes all the sense in the world. Okay. Let me take a break. When we come back, i got a lot more, including Tom Cotton and his New York Times op-ed and the big scandal involving that. So stay right there. We'll be right back with all that.
2: Welcome back, guys.
1: Time for the big scandal. The big Tom Cotton scandal. Well, what does that mean? I will explain it.
2: I will explain it to you, bitch.
1: All right. Let me pull it up. Here we go. So let me explain to you what happened with Tom Cotton. Is he a senator or a representative? Why am I blanking on that right now? This is the most inopportune time to blank on that. Senator Tom Cotton. Yeah, he's a senator. Yeah. He's a senator. I think he used to be a congressman. Who knows? Anyway, so uh, Senator Tom Cotton, or as we call him here, Giraffe Boy, he, uh, <laughs> he has a long neck. Anyway, <laughs> I digress. So he wrote an op-ed in The New York Times about, you know, what's happening around the country right now. There are many uh, protests for George Floyd and to stop police brutality—that's a spark that got people out there in the streets. I think there's a lot, you know, a lot more to that, and it goes a lot deeper than that. But this is the Cliff Notes version I'm giving you here. Um, and there were, of course, instances of of rioting and looting. And Tom Cotton, for those of you who don't know, is one of the most vicious neoconservatives that we have in the country. I mean, he's right up there with Dick Cheney in terms of, you know, his beliefs. And, you know, he's, he's famously, like, defended Guantanamo Bay in an even stronger way than anybody else ever has, supporter of torture, supporter of all these, you know, illegal wars. So he's as big of an American exceptionalist as you could get, as big of a neoconservative as you can get. And what we learned with this New York Times op-ed is as big of an authoritarian as you could get. So he wrote a piece for, New, for the New York Times, and I believe the title was, Mr. President, Send in the Troops. And in the article, he explains how, listen, we need to restore law and order, and we know for sure that the U.S. military can handle this, so you know, let's deploy the U.S. military in the United States of America, effectively invading the United States of America, and let's shut this whole thing down. Now, one more night of looting and rioting. Now, of course, he tries to do the thing that, uh, you know, all these guys try to do, which is, say, no, 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 no. I'll keep... Me, bro, I'm totally for the peaceful protest, bro. I just want to stop the looters and the rioters, bro. Except Trump said the same thing, and then he gaffed peaceful protesters to do a photo op with a Bible in front of a church. So, do I believe Trump when he says, I'm going only after the, the looters and the rioters? Of course I don't believe him. He proved the opposite. He gassed peaceful protesters. Do I believe Tom Cotton when he says, oh, no, no, we're going to send in the military on U.S. soil, but don't worry. It's only for the looters and the rioters. Well, 98 or 99% of the protesters are peaceful. 1 or 2% are violent. You're going to send in the U.S. military who are not trained at all for domestic purposes? To go after the 1% or 2%, just shut up. Shut up, you moron. God, he's so obnoxious, and it's so annoying, and it's obviously untrue. And i got a bridge to sell you if you believe him when he says, like, oh, yeah, no, no, only the bad ones we're going after. Sure, sure. If you send in the U.S. military, here's what they would do. Stop protests, period. That's what they do. Clear the streets. That's what they do. So, in other words, Tom Cotton is saying, uh, you know that whole First Amendment thing and freedom to protest? Disagree. We're going to go ahead and go in the opposite direction. So that was the whole point of his op-ed. That was the whole point, is to just call for rank authoritarianism. Now, as a backlash to that New York Times article, oh, my God, the New York Times got hammered. They got ripped. They got obliterated. People were like, you know, what, what wouldn't you run in terms of a right-wing view? <laughs> Could you have, like, Himmler <laughs> defending... Nazi Germany, and say, Us, bro.
0: We love all viewpoints, bro. That's what it's good to do. We got Himmler. So it's, it's just, it's a, we don't agree
1: with him. it has got all viewpoints. So people were going after them. And then I, the New York Times sort of made it worse in a way because they, they did, like, a couple Weasley things afterwards. Like, one was like, oh, we added an editor's note. <laughs> and then another one was like, Um, It was actually kind of long And it was saying like Oh, this didn't pass We shouldn't have run this Because it didn't pass Our basic standards of like In in that it had many factual inaccuracies in it And so like they tried to have it both ways in a way Like they tried Okay, we'll keep it up But then on top of keeping it up We're going to say Hey, we shouldn't have even run it in the first place So it's like they were trying to appease the right And the authoritarians But also trying to like tell reasonable people That like Hey, okay, we know he's a piece of trash (laughs) So, now, as, as a result of this, okay, you had the editor of the New York Times resign. Now, I don't know the backstory. I don't know if he resigned because he was embarrassed with the New York Times, like, trying to have it both ways after the fact. So, I don't know if he resigned in the sense that he's, like, defending, running the Tom Cotton thing, and now he's resigning and saying... You know, New York Times doesn't believe in free speech. I don't know if he's saying that or if, if there's some other motivation or, or reason for him resigning or if he was forced out and fired because they didn't like that he was cool with running it. I, I don't know the reason. But anyway, he, he resigned. And so Tom Cotton went on Fox Business, and he was asked about the whole scandal. And here's what he had to say.
0: over Senator Tom Cotton's New York Times op-ed this past week, which was on violence in protests across the country. His piece Wednesday, titled Send in the Troops, called for an overwhelming show of force and sparked an online revolt at the New York Times. The Times issued a statement after it published it, saying this, We've examined the piece and the process leading up to the the, uh, the publication. This review made clear that a rushed editorial process led to the publication of an op-ed that did not meet our standards. Here to react right now is the senator himself, Senator Tom Kahn of the Armed Services Intelligence, Banking, and uh, Economic Committees. Good to see you, sir. Thank you so much for joining me, Senator. What happened with the Times op-ed? Was
1: it rushed?
4: <laughs> Hardly, Maria. I will say my op-ed didn't uh, meet the Times standards. It far exceeded their standards, which is usually uh, sophomore left-wing dribble. Uh, But here's what happened behind the scenes. Last weekend, we saw rioting, looting, really anarchy and insurrection on our streets. In Washington, D.C., seven days ago, a famous church was torched, memorials were desecrated, stores were looted. And I said simply last Monday that if the local police are overwhelmed by the numbers of these insurrectionists, if they need support from the National Guard or, if necessary, as a last resort, federal troops under the Insurrection Act, and that's exactly what has to happen. Now fortunately, that's what happened in most places over the course of last week, so what we saw yesterday was people exercising their First Amendment rights to demonstrate and to protest. But in the meantime, we published that exact argument in the New York Times. The New York Times editorial page editor and owner defended it in public statements, but then they totally surrendered to a woke child mob from their own newsroom that apparently gets triggered if they're presented with any opinion contrary to their own, as opposed to telling yeah, the woke children in their newsroom, this is the workplace, not a social justice seminar on campus. Oh,
1: Mr. Oh, I'm against snowflakes. I'm i a tough free speech guy. Let's understand what's happening here. Tom Cotton wrote an article about how we should effectively Suspend the First Amendment, which has freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom to protest peacefully. And now he's crying for the First Amendment for himself. We did it. We just broke the irony meter. <laughs> well, it'll never, it'll never get crazier than this. The whole point of his article was like, we got to send in the U.S. military to stop what's happening in the streets. So, in other words, the whole Constitution thing, the whole First Amendment thing, suspend it, martial law, bring in the troops, invade the United States of America, shut down the demonstrations, it's gone too far, I don't agree with it, police state time, baby, authoritarianism time, baby, and then he gets a little taste of his own medicine of, sorry, this doesn't meet our standards, we're not going to run it. Oh, my state! My free speech! Yes! you surrendered to the woke mob, good sir. Wait a second. You're the woke mob when it comes to the demonstrations in the streets. Because you said send in the military to stop them. That's what you are. You're against free speech. You're against the First Amendment. You're an authoritarian. So this story, I mean, oh my God, what it does to me. It drives me nuts. Now, let me be clear about something. I actually don't agree when there are left-wingers who say, take it down, take it down. Listen, he already wrote it. It's already up there, okay? Of course you should leave it be. But the New York Times defense, when they were saying, hey, listen, we believe in all viewpoints here just so everybody understands, so of course we're going to, you know, run it, and he's a sitting senator, very powerful, so he needs his voice heard. But the New York Times is full of it when they say, oh, we believe in all viewpoints here, so we're going to let this one go. No, you don't. You don't believe in all viewpoints. Every single time there's a war, surprisingly, it's unanimous, and everybody over at the New York Times is like, we think it's a good idea to do this war. They don't have any dissenting voices when it matters the most. So it's nonsense. It's trash. The idea, oh, there's some far-left outlet. No, they're not. Don't be ridiculous. They end up doing propaganda for the establishment just like Fox News does propaganda for the Republican establishment, just like MSNBC and CNN do propaganda for the Democratic establishment, you know, the New York Times services the establishment in a broader sense. Every single time there's a war, it's nonstop, wall-to-wall. Yes, we think this is just. Yes, we think this is moral. It's left-punching. So I think the thing that upsets me the most, it's not that they ran it. The thing that upsets me the most is that you and I both know Tom Cotton would actually not be cool at all with an outlet that really represented all viewpoints. You know that. What if there was an outlet, you know, what if the New York Times said, you know, listen, yeah, we have some uh, viewpoints that are left of center, but not enough. We're going to bring in a communist. We're going to bring in a communist. We're going to bring in an anarchist. And they're going to write about how we should abolish private property. And they're going to write about how um, there are instances of property violence that are actually moral and ethical, and that have uh, utility and help bring about positive change. So, does anybody think that if the New York Times read an article from an anarchist or a communist that said, I'm in favor of property damage in these protests, that Tom Cotton would say, hey, it's free speech, bro. Let him, they they represent all viewpoints. No, he wouldn't. He'd be tweeting about how, oh, left wing idiot paper, stupid. Why'd Why'd you run this? This is crazy. You're running something crazy. So that's what frustrates me, is that all this concern trolling about freedom of speech, it only cuts one way. It's only, you say the most insane thing you could ever think of, a far-right opinion, and then when people go, hey man, that's kind of stupid.
0: Not my free speech! My free speech! It's my free speech! My free speech! You hate my free speech!
2: No, I'm just saying that
1: I think child labor's a bad thing. But it's my free speech to say that child
4: labor is good, yeah! my free speech to say that every
1: war ever that we've done should have been done even harder and stronger and let's invade more places (laughs) he called for an authoritarian crackdown in the United States of America he wanted the US military to invade the United States of America shut down demonstrations effectively suspend the constitution and the first amendment and now he turns around and says where's my first amendment so, listen, they already ran it. You know what? Keep it up. Don't. I wouldn't put the weasley little fucking editor's note at the end. Oh, see, well, hey, well, we thought it meant our standards, but it
0: didn't mean our standards.
1: But the response here is not, hey, pull it down. I don't like it. The response is, hey, keep it up. But just so you understand, Tom Cotton... You're a total idiot and an authoritarian and a massive hypocrite because you're screaming for the First Amendment for you, and you want to take it away from the protesters. And, oh, yeah, by the way, now we're actually going to live the values of we represent all viewpoints. And here comes the communists. Here comes the anarchists. And, by the way, even me, even me, I'm, I am a mild social democrat. My politics are in the center in the rest of the world, and also among the American people. I'm, I'm the ultimate centrist in that respect. Just a mild social democrat and a non-interventionist in that I don't like doing any offensive wars. And even my viewpoint is nowhere near the New York Times. They don't have anybody representing my viewpoint working for the New York Times. So this idea that it's like, oh my God, they're a far-left outlet, and oh my God, the woke mob is canceling me. No, we just think you're a goddamn idiot. Tom Cotton, because you're an idiot and you're an authoritarian. And you and I both know the second that they were to run articles from communists or anarchists or people like me or people to the left of me, Tom Cotton would never be cool with free speech for them. So I hate this stupid game, and it shows you how hollow it is. At the, you had this whole online right-wing culture that was all about screaming free speech because you had some pink-haired college kids creating safe spaces. And they said, you know what? Forget your feelings. You're supposed to hear dissenting viewpoints. It's part of growing up. I'm all about free speech. I'm all about the First Amendment. And then we have an instance of a literal crackdown on the First Amendment and free speech and freedom to protest with a Republican president wanting to send the military into our streets. And all of a sudden, they flip their position. And ironically enough for Tom Cotton, he's flipping his position. He's Crying for his free speech to write and tell everybody that we shouldn't have free speech. I have no words. All right, next. So we have a new Biden scandal for everybody. This one's a week old, but I really wanted to talk about it because I feel like um, this is one where I have a dissenting opinion and I'm going to walk into a minefield here. So um, Joe Biden said that 10 to 15 percent of Americans, quote, are just not very good people. And he also said the vast majority of the people are decent. And this was in an online town hall um, and the Trump campaign is now using the footage to attack Biden and his team. So, um, now, many people have seen this, and the response is, well, here we go again. This is Joe Biden and his irredeemable deplorable moment. Remember when Hillary said, like, oh, the Trump supporters, or like at least half the Trump supporters, are a basket of deplorables? Or they're irredeemable deplorables, whatever she said. I don't remember the exact phrase. I know deplorables was in it. Um, and so that was a big scandal. And then they clobbered her with that. And then also there was the Mitt Romney famous, Oh, 47% of Americans are takers. And my job is not to represent the takers. So people are now comparing this to that. Now, the criticism of Biden that I agree with is this as a politician, you never want to say something like this, but I will say, I don't think that those things are comparable because, 47% that's Mitt Romney saying half the country are basically pieces of trash and I'm not going to represent them. And he of course just meant Democrats. Um, And in the case of Hillary, the implication was that like all Trump voters are irredeemable deplorables. But I think her actual words were like half of them are irredeemable deplorables. Um, But even in that instance, it would be a much higher percentage than what Biden's saying here. Biden's saying 10 to 15%. Are just not very good people, meaning 10 to 15% are bad people. And I have to say, I'm really not outraged by this at all. And I'm not outraged because I don't think that's that far off. (laughs) So I've talked about this before on the show, but like there's a solid 20 or 25% block of the country that are like hardcore evangelical fundamentalists. And, you know, I don't know the exact percentage, but think of the hard percentage that are, like, just super-duper racist. I don't agree with Hillary that it's, like, Trump, all Trump supporters are, like, half of Trump supporters. No, that's not it. I'm talking about the ones who are seriously, like, like, they could listen to a speech from Richard Spencer and be, like, nailed it. I'm talking about those people. What percentage make up those people? What percentage make up just the complete and utter psychopaths? with zero empathy, no sympathy, cannot put themselves in somebody else's shoes, whether it be murderers, whether it be rapists, whether it be big company CEOs who have, you know, wouldn't hesitate for a second to lay people off and ruin their lives and not care about it. They're, I think the spectrum of discussion that's reasonable when it comes to what percentage of people are bad per se. And I get that a lot goes into the definition, you know, what exactly constitutes being bad and how did somebody get that way? Is it nature? Is it nurture? How, how, how? But I'd say anywhere from 1% to 20%. That's the realm of discussion that I think is actually like totally reasonable. And even though as a politician, Biden shouldn't be saying this, I, truth is always a defense. And, you know, you can come after him and say, come on, man, like, don't say that. And, I mean, he could say, I, I think it's true. And that's not, I think Mitt Romney was dead wrong. I think Hillary was dead wrong. I think he's close to right. Now, my number is actually, I think, probably a little bit lower, maybe 5% of people. Um, but, yeah, it's not, like, I disagree with, there's a right-wing view on this and a left-wing view on this. The left-wing view, generally speaking, although there are distinctions, is that, hey, people are generally good, and they're inherently good. And, like, if they become bad, it, it's there has to be a reason for it, but really at their core, they're good. And the right-wing view it is more of a hardcore um, nature argument of, like, people, like, I don't trust anybody. People are kind of inherently bad, and we have to, like, civilize them through society. But at our core, we're all, you know, kind of selfish beings, and people are, like, inherently bad. And my opinion on that has always been that everybody's right and everybody's wrong at the same time. So what I mean is, I think there's some percentage of people that are basically inherently good. And I also think there's some percentage of people that are, like, inherently bad. But then I think most people, in fact, the overwhelming majority of people, are both good and bad. And, like, we're, we're a mix. So, in other words, philosophers have debated this for a long time. Like, are people inherently good or inherently bad? And, and you know, how do we how do we work through this issue? And... I think that there is no such thing as, like, a default human nature setting. People aren't just good. People aren't just bad. I think that um, it's what I just described. Some are good. Some are bad. Most are a mix of both good and bad. And it's complicated. It's complex. It's not, like, there's no easy, simple answer. And then you get into the deeper conversation of, well, how did somebody become good or bad? Like, again, generally speaking, the left-wing view is, Well, it has to do with, like, the environment they were raised in. And it has nothing to do with nature, how they are innately. It has to do with nurture and how they were raised and the culture and the environment and all that stuff. And that will dictate how they are. And my response to that is, in many instances, yes. In many instances, yes. People are very, very influenced by their surroundings and by how they were raised and the culture and society and the environment and all that stuff. But, again, that's not totally true because... We all know there's been plenty of cases of, like, people who were raised in what's supposed to be the ideal environment with loving parents and all that stuff, and then they become vicious serial killers. So, obviously, there are some instances of, yes, there's some wiring that's off, and somebody's, like, a vicious, psychopathic, sociopathic murderer, you know? So, even with being raised in what's supposed to be an ideal situation. So, in other words, there is no there's no default human nature setting and then we're all working off that everything's a mess and the world's a complicated place and some people are born with some wiring off and some people are born just like inherently really kind and 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 giving and, and nice and good and then i think most people are probably a mix of both of those things that we all have like i would file myself under the good and bad you know category where i think the overwhelming majority of people are where it's like yeah you have Positive instincts, and you have negative instincts. And again, like you, I don't know exactly how I got this way. Is it mostly from nurture, or some of it just wiring in my brain? I think all that feeds into it. All of it feeds into it. So um, I think that on the left, there is this kind of people don't want to ever entertain the idea of like, no, there might be some percentage of the population that's just not. Like, Matt, I tweeted about this, and Matt Taibbi responded to me and said, well, hold on. I thought that if you're a liberal, then you're supposed to believe that, you know, people can effectively be rehabilitated. And, like, that's why we shouldn't have the death penalty. That's why we shouldn't have, you know, punishment when it comes to the criminal justice system, and it should be geared more towards rehabilitation. And my response to him was, like, I believe, as a matter of principle, that we should not have the death penalty because we kill the wrong people and, and you know we should rehabilitate because it's the moral thing to do. It's the right thing to do. But I also said to him, I'm not under any illusions though, that everybody is reformable or everybody can be rehabilitated. I don't think that's true at all. I think that there are instances of TFGs too far gone. People who, you know, there are serial killers who you're just not going to reform. You're not going to rehabilitate them. Something's off. There's something off. And so... Now, the serial killer is an extreme example, but there are people with, you know, psychopathic behavior that manifests in financial crimes, for example. And it could be laundered through a perfectly legal route, like if you go work on Wall Street, for example. So I think in, like, that person, I would put in the category of bad. (laughs) Now, I know Biden's not referring to, like, Wall Street bankers or, like, vicious, Psychopathic police officers, um, but they exist. Like the, there are a certain percentage of the society that's they're bad. They're bad. Now again, he might have a slight overestimate here of 10 to 15 percent. That might be a little bit on the high side, but I think it's probably 5 percent of people that are just bad. That and it's in you could find them in almost every walk of life. You know them in your life. You've seen them. You've met them. You know some maybe in your family or whatever where it's like, there's just no hope. <laughs> and again, we should try to, to ameliorate the situation and, and fix and, and all that, rehabilitate, but just don't have any illusions. Like this idea that, what, are, so are we? You answer the question then. See, this is the point that I was making to people. You answer the question. Biden says 10 to 15% of Americans are not very good people. What do you think the number is of people who are, quote, not very good people? And I have to say this, I know it might sound a little harsh, but if you think that the answer to that is truly zero, zero percent of people are not very good people, I think that's so delusional. Because then how do you explain the serial killer who was raised in a perfect environment, in an ideal situation? Now, I get it, there could be some biological wiring off or whatever, but still, you could categorize that as bad, because we all agree serial killing is bad. We all agree a a serial child rapist is bad. We all agree that those things exist. So what percentages are are bad? And what constitutes bad? Is it, I'm talking about the criminals in that respect, but I'm also lumping in, um, you know, people who are off through, because the wiring's off, and people who are off because of other reasons. Like, you know, having a rough go of it. And it might not be their fault, that their life was a mess, but if you end up becoming, you know, a a vicious criminal or whatever it may be, or somebody who's in Al Qaeda, or somebody who's um, a hardcore evangelical fundamentalist Christian, or somebody who's in the KKK, and like, what percentage of society is not very good people? Again, I think Biden's not far off. I'd say maybe 5% of people are not very good people, which again, generally speaking, that's a positive thing right like we have five percent of just bad apples and five percent of people who are just so overwhelmingly kind and giving and like just really good and don't have a negative bone in their body and then that leaves what 90 percent of people who are like both we have both aspects uh, in in ourselves we have the capacity for very good and we have the capacity for for very evil and very bad and so i don't know i think that the reason why because it's not a politically correct conversation to have because you don't want to ever feel like you're writing off a certain percentage of the population. Now, again, I'm being clear. You don't write them off. You try to rehabilitate people, but have no illusions about it. There are some people who are beyond reform. That just is the nature of reality. So anyway, how would you answer that question? What percentage of society are just not very good people? You know, my guess is conservatives, (laughs) many conservatives would probably say over 50% are not very good people. Many lefties would say actually zero. I think we're all... We're all good or a core. Some lefties would say that. Uh, again, I have a view that's a little bit of a mix of both, where probably 5% of people are just you know, kind of too far gone in a variety of different ways, and they got to that position of being too far gone, some through nature, some through nurture, but like, there are some people who are not very good people. Anyway, I'm rambling on here, but this, the reason why I wanted to have this conversation is because it gets into the broader philosophical discussion. Where there are some philosophers who say people at their core are just evil, selfish, greedy pieces of trash. And then there are other philosophers who say, no, people at their core are actually very like noble and they mean well. And I just wanted to state, based off of this, this Biden article, this Biden-like gap is the hook here, that I actually don't think either one of those is correct. I think some people are bad, some people are good, and most people are both good and bad. And then, you know, yes, your nurture and your environment will kind of determine how and when those different sides of you come out. So anyway, um, I know that this one's a more controversial segment of mine, but I wanted to throw it out there. And um, I'm very curious how you guys will answer that question. What percentage of people do you think are, quote, not very good people? Okay, let me have some big seltzer real quick, and then we will talk about the jobs report. <clears throat> I'm parched, bitch. the jobs report came out a few days ago and uh, Trump and the Republicans made the giant mistake of bragging. <laughs> so they bragged about it. Um, here's why that's absurd. David Dayen spoke to the Hill about this. Take a look.
3: At the same time, Bloomberg reported this week that only one-third of unemployment claims have been processed so far. So how did Wall Street rebound so fast?
0: Executive editor of the American Prospect, David Dayen, has a piece Hmm. that explains exactly this, and he joins us now. Great to see you, David.
3: Good to see you guys.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So this is one of the things that, you know, it's kind of a hallmark of the dysfunction of our times, mass unemployment. You have 74%, I think, of the American public saying we're headed in the wrong direction, millions being kicked off of
3: health insurance, unable to make rent, chaos in the streets, and yet
0: stock market's doing great. What's going on?
3: <laughs> well, it's, it's really two words, and the two words are federal Reserve. So uh, if you if you actually dig in to the stock numbers uh, and all the capital markets, really, not just stock, uh, you, you see that uh, there was a deterioration in February, and particularly in March, and everything ends on March 23rd, and there's this complete bounce back. Now, what happened on March 23rd? Well, it was on that day that the Federal Reserve made an announcement that it would essentially do whatever it takes to uh, prevent uh, uh, the investors from taking losses from the coronavirus crisis, Uh, and and that included the purchase of corporate debt, which it had never done in its entire history. And just the signal of that, just the announcement that everybody would be protected, followed by the CARES Act, which gave the sort of muscle behind that announcement uh, by giving $500 billion to Treasury that it could use as part of this money cannon of $4.5 trillion that the Fed had at its disposal, that all was enough. Uh, and everything uh, really proceeded from there. Stocks went way back up. Uh, corporate bond uh, ETFs uh, that track corporate bond markets went way back up. Every major corporation floated debt and uh, everything sort of went back to normal for the market. David, could you like, compare that? What's the disparity between the markets and then the real-time economic conditions for actual working Americans? Well, it's interesting that we're talking today because we just had this good jobs report uh, of, of 2.5 million uh, increase uh, in, in jobs in May. However, that was coming off this incredible cratering in April loss of, of over 20 million jobs. Uh, So, you know, everybody's crowing here that we got back about 10% of what was lost. Uh, We're still seeing uh, reports like a report from the Census Bureau that over, uh, almost half of all Americans lost income uh, in the last couple months of this crisis. Um, And, uh, you know, that, that shows up in the job statistics, but it's also, it's also just cuts the income uh, from people who are working, whether they're getting furloughs or pay cuts or things like that. So there's incredible economic pain out there. Uh, it's masked a little bit by increased unemployment and uh, these one-time stimulus checks, but that's all temporary. Uh, and uh, yet the the benefit to stocks and, and to investors is really permanent. And that's really the difference here. Congress could have have given as much support to ordinary working people as they did uh, to the investor class, but instead we have this bifurcation. Uh, Everything that individuals got was time-limited and temporary, and everything that uh, investors got was uh, endless and enduring.
1: So the jobs report came out, and there were like 2.5 million jobs that were created. And then Trump and the Republicans went out there and they were bragging about it, and they've been talking about V-shaped recovery. We're going to have V-shaped recovery. It's going to be tremendous. We're on our way back. And um, as David Dayen is talking about here, that was a 10% bounce back from all that we've lost. So even the official unemployment rate is still, I believe, 13.3%, which puts us in the ballpark of what the official unemployment rate was at the peak of the Great Recession, and they're out there bragging about it. Okay, now, he explains what's really going on here, and it's stunning when you look at the details. So the reason why the market has bounced back is that we've basically said that we're fully implementing corporate socialism, and the investors can't lose no matter what they do. And so the Fed stepped in, and... They're buying corporate debt, which is the first time in history that they've ever done that. And you have this like total socialization. It's the old saying, privatize the profits, socialize the losses. All the losses are being socialized, and regular people are being left out to dry. So you have this complete decoupling of the stock market, and the investor class, and the elite from your average American. Now, he goes on to say in that clip, eventually, in one way or another, this is going to catch up. And there will be like a moment of reckoning because you can't have a situation. It's, never been, it's always been somewhat decoupled, how the market is doing from your average American. Um, but it's never been this bad because the actual unemployment rate is over 20% which is, you know, the U-6 unemployment rate, which is like Great Depression territory. And he just said half of Americans lost wages during the crisis so far. And the crisis is not over. So, yes, of course, we're not at the bottom yet. And Trump and the Republicans are out there acting like we're at the bottom. Meanwhile, 70% 70 of the stimulus was spent. Now, before the last jobs report, none of the stimulus money was spent. So the stimulus package blew its load. Seventy percent are spent. is spent. And then now what's going to happen when that runs out? What's going to happen? Now, again, the market may continue to to rise or relatively stay steady. I don't know. It could be because they've, everything's been socialized. The Fed will not let the investors fail. The Fed will prop up the market come hell or high water, but... Regular people are already getting obliterated, and they will get more obliterated. So we could have bailed out the people effectively. We could have done universal basic income, done uh, you know Medicare for all in the middle of a pandemic. We could have done the temporary nationalization of wages like they did in Germany. And by the way, they have a 3.9% unemployment rate. 3.9%! They kept it low by nationalizing wages temporarily. We didn't do that here. So now we have an actual unemployment rate that's about 20%. And we have this total decoupling of how the stock market is doing from your average American. So the pain and the devastation and the poverty that's out there, it's, it's not being reflected in your traditional indicators and, um, I think, I think Trump and the Republicans are in for a rude awakening, man. Right now, Biden is a giant favorite, giant favorite to win the presidency because you can't – like, he seems to think that, oh, no, we're actually on the road to recovery for regular people, and, like, this jobs report is an indicator of that. Nothing could be further from the truth. What we've done is fully socialize the stock market, let them know you can't fail no matter what. And left regular people out to drive. And so those regular people are the ones who vote. And I've never seen anything like this, man, in my life. It's almost like a parody of how elite, corrupt, and out of touch the the 1% are. I mean, to basically rush in and the first thing you do is pop up the stock market. (laughs) And everybody else is... Is dying. Like, eventually those chickens are going to come home to roost, dog. There's no escaping that reality. You can't, you know, you can't escape it for that long. And David Dane explains how something, something's going to break. Something's going to break. I think does he bring up? I think he brings up commercial real estate as the thing that could be the catalyst. But I mean, we're already in a devastating economic uh, circumstance, and it's only going to get worse. And so, don't believe the silly bragging. What has happened is there's been a full decoupling of the stock market and how corporations and the wealthy are doing. They got bailed out to the hilt, effectively $5 trillion in a bailout package that Steve Mnuchin decides where it goes. And then on top of that, the Federal Reserve, which is basically quasi-independent, they're spending a $1 trillion a day, or they were, to prop up the markets and say, no no matter what, you're not going to lose. So they rushed in and immediately bailed out the wealthy and the corporations and regular people are dying. Imagine if they, with that sense of urgency, they bailed out regular people as opposed to bailing out the rich. Oh, we'd be in a much different scenario now. But instead, you've got Democrats and Republicans saying we can't afford stuff like Medicare for all. But apparently the Fed can't afford a trillion dollars a day out of thin air to prop up the market. And $5 trillion Congress can afford in a bailout package that... Pretty much all goes to corporations and the wealthy. Oh, this is so devastating. Just wait until the crisis gets even worse. When they allow foreclosures and evictions, it's going to be a crisis on that front. I mean, it's going to get bad, guys. Buckle up. Okay, next. There's a new NBC News Wall Street Journal poll that was just released. I want to show this to you. So the red here is people who think Trump is better on the issue. The blue, people who think Biden is better on the issue. So when it comes to cutting unemployment, Trump edges Biden. 48% to, what does that say, 35%? I'm a little far away from the screen here. Dealing with the economy. Trump, 48%. Biden, 37%. So he's got advantages here. Dealing with China, 43%. For Trump, 40% for Biden. Now, here's where everything flips and goes pro-Biden. There's way more areas where people are are pro-Biden now than pro-Trump. Being competent and effective, 47% for Biden, 38% for Trump. Representing change, 41% for Biden, 37% for Trump. Dealing with the coronavirus, 48% for Biden, 37% for Trump. Ending gridlock, 40% for Biden, 35% for Trump. Dealing with health care, 49% for Biden, 34% for Trump. Everybody's bleeding their health insurance now. Everybody's losing it, and that's reflected in those numbers there. Addressing the concerns of the African-American community, 49% for Biden, 30% for Trump. Addressing the concerns of the Latino community, 50% for Biden, 26% for Trump. Having the ability to bring the country together, 51% for Biden, 26% for Trump. Even his own supporters are like, well, he can't do that. Uh, dealing with issues uh, of concern to women, 46% for Biden, 25% for Trump. Now, those are just that's the little appetizer that I gave you there. Those are the specific issues. There's only three areas where Trump beats Biden and Biden beats Trump in the rest of them. But really, this is the this is the sign that I think is totally devastating for him. Um, so they say, eight in ten Americans say the country is quote. Out of control. 80% of Americans say the country is out of control. Only 15% say it's under control. So that means even some of Trump's most hardcore supporters are like, well, obviously everything's out of control right now. Okay, that is, uh, I think, a really, really devastating fact for Trump. Because what we saw in the primary is that there was this, um, this urge of people to get back to normal, and just the Democratic voters just wanted to find somebody who they thought was more electable, and so Biden was like the default on that front. Well, if 80% of the country is saying everything's out of control right now, and people have the urge to get things back to normal, that ain't a good sign for Trump, man. Now, I saved the craziest one for last year, So here's what they say, quote, among voters living in the top 2020 battleground states, Arizona, Colorado, Florida, Maine, Michigan, Minnesota, Nevada, New Hampshire, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, Biden's combined lead over Trump is eight points, 50% to 42%. So in the states that decide the election, Biden has an eight-point lead. Now, listen, in the 2016 election, Hillary nationally had a two to four point lead, nationally. But when you broke it down state by state, Trump was doing, was hanging in there pretty well in the swing states. If Hillary had any lead at all in the polls in the swing states moving into to election day, it was two or three points. Now we're talking about Biden with an eight point lead lead in the swing states which decide the election. Trump is in big trouble, bro. Now, the, the area where he still is trouncing Biden is enthusiasm among supporters. So, in other words, Trump people can't wait to vote for Trump again. They love Trump. And basically, the people who are going to support Biden are just tolerating him. But listen, at a certain point, There's just too much chaos, too much mayhem, and people say anything but this. And so when you have a pandemic, when you have an economic depression, when you have complete civil unrest and an unsteady hand at leadership, I think Trump is a hell of a lot more vulnerable now than he was in 2016. And remember, in 2016, I was the guy who was sounding the alarm and saying Hillary could definitely lose to Trump because he was campaigning in a much better way and sounded much more populist, and she was making all the wrong arguments. And, you know, I saw that he could definitely win. This time, I think Biden at this point is a, is a pretty clear favorite. I think he's 65% chance to win, maybe even as high 70% right now. Um, now, again, I want to caution everybody, it's all subject to change. So what I say today is only valid for like a week. And then we come back in a week, we look at the numbers, and we have a new evaluation. But, um, yeah, you get the sense that with everything going on in the country, it's just too much. There's just too much happening. There's too much going on. It's too much chaos. It's too much mayhem. And people are just like, get me to a place where I don't have to think about it again all the time. A lot of people are really, really scared out there, really nervous, you know? And you can't blame them. Look at what's going on. So 80% think the country is, quote, out of control. That does not look good for Donald Trump. But again, you know, I'll update you in a little bit as to the state of the race. But as of right now, if Biden just keeps doing what I keep telling him to do, which is, hey, bro, go sit on your couch. Go watch, you know. What should I go with this time? Every time I talk about what Biden should watch reruns of, I switch it. So I said Brady Bunch one time, I said Golden Girls one time, (laughs) I said I Love Lucy one time. I'm going with those super old shows. Let's go a little bit newer, but still kind of old. Just go watch some uh, King of Queens, bro. Go watch some, you know, some Kevin James, King of Queens. (laughs) I don't know why I'm wasting time babbling about the kind of show Biden could watch. But that's all he's got to do. Eat some ice cream, sit back, watch some TV, be in your bathrobe. That's it that's all you got to do and let Trump just keep, you know, making a fool of himself because I'm not kidding when I say that dynamic of like outsider populist bomb thrower, that's a very very strong way to run a campaign when times are relatively normal. But when you have an economic crisis or not an economic crisis, when you have national crises of a variety of different types, there is something that people look for that's a more steady calming hand of leadership and trump is definitely not that that populist bomb thrower attitude in 2016 was exactly right for the country at the time but now i think people want more of a steady hand of leadership and i'm not saying biden is a steady hand of leadership but i'm saying he gives off that appearance a lot more than trump does so i think biden's a clear favorite at this point and the more stuff rolls in the worse it looks for trump okay next So there's a lot of this that has been going on recently. Let me show everybody. Floyd protesters in England pulled down statue of British slave trader Edward Colston. So um, it's not just in the U.S. It's not just in England. Um, you also have statues of King Leopold II. He oversaw the brutal colonization and exploitation of the Congo. Um, his... His statue was either defaced or, or pulled down in Belgium. I don't know which. There's been so many of these stories. And then, of course, you had um, protesters deface the statue of Confederate General William Carter Wickham in, um, in Monroe Park. So a lot, of these, uh, a lot of these statues of questionable figures are being pulled down, not just in the U.S., but around the world. And again, remember, this was all sparked from um, the killing of George Floyd and now those officers have been charged, uh, arrested and charged, and Keith Ellison is in control of the case, which, of course, is a, is a very uh, positive development, and we might actually see justice as a result of that. Um, but what's interesting is you even see some instances, and we covered this on the last show, of they're saying, let's actually vote to pull down these statues. So it's not just... There are, there are instances of people just doing it, right? But there's a lot of... Like in Virginia... They decided we're going to pull down a Robert E. Lee statue. Like they voted on that and agreed to it. And so this is, I mean, obviously I think this is a positive thing in terms of, yeah, you don't want, if somebody's main so-called accomplishment was being a a brutal, oppressive authoritarian or dictator or Confederate general or or slave owner or slave trader or whatever it is, yeah yeah I totally get that's not somebody who you want to venerate, and especially if you have you have people who are taxpayers who are minorities and they're paying to their to a government that this is what they put up as some sort of model citizen or some sort of thing to aspire to and it's just it makes no sense it it's twenty twenty and we're still like you know having some sort of weird hero worship via statues and monuments for some of the people who we know historically were dead wrong about stuff. So, like, I get it. They should pull it down for sure. Um, here's the, what I want to caution everybody about, though. The first thing that the establishment will concede on is the symbolism. And we need to be cognizant of that because if in their mind, if they think, oh, the way that we could stop the protests and the riots and all this stuff if all we have to do. Is pull down these goofy statues and monuments sign me up because symbolism is the easy thing to cave on because nothing hinges on it so in other words if they could use this as a distraction from actual substantive police reform for example now, again, I want to be clear. I'm not saying I disagree with pulling down the that. No, I totally agree with it. Pull them down, for sure. But that's not enough. And that's the point. The point is, unless and until you get those campaign zero reforms, there's no victory. Unless and until you end the drug war, there's no victory. Unless and until you do the police the police law, which charges every officer in the vicinity with the crime of, the most psychopathic cop who commits the worst crime, so in other words, if one commits murder and there's two standing by and they don't do anything, they're also guilty of murder. Until you get a law like that, there's no victory. So I just want to caution everybody, because the thing that I'm seeing, which is really creepy and weird in some ways, is like there's now been these protests, these demonstrations, where white people are washing the feet of black people and it's supposed to be this, like, mass, like, forgiveness ritual type thing. And it does kind of seem like a religious ritual in a way, where it's like, you know, the white guilt is being poured out by all these white people, like, let me wash your feet. I'm so sorry my people have been so racist for so long. It's so terrible. Yeah. And as Benjamin Dixon said, white people, I don't need you to wash my feet. I can wash my own feet. Just don't be racist and let's fix the police. <laughs> like, like, that's the point. Like, let's do that. So I totally agree with Ben Dixon. I think the white guilt ritual things are kind of weird. And, and in that instance, it is a total diversion where, like, if this is going to substitute for real action, then no. Throw this out the window. It's really sad and it's really weird and nothing hinges on that. And it's strange. Let's do something substantive. So, in other words, I don't want people to get sidetracked And, you know, kind of like ruin the moment by not getting the tangible changes that we need. And I fear that so many people are susceptible to it, of like the symbolism becoming the main point. Like, oh, the main point was to pull down a statue. No, there's a lot more that needs to be done to, to get racial justice in this country and to get economic justice as well. So there's a lot that needs to be done. It's not just pull down a statue. That's good, but we need more. It's not like nobody woke up one day and said let's have a, do a mass protest because we want white, white people to wash our feet. No, <laughs> like that's it's a weird ritual you're doing and it seems kind of religious and you probably shouldn't do it. Like let's actually fight towards policy, substantive reform that would fix the country. So anyway, don't get lost on the battlefield of symbolism because nothing hinges on that. And that's why they're always the first things that the authorities cave on, is because if nothing hinges on it, sure, give that away. Who cares? The second you go for their power, and the second you go to really change stuff, you'll meet resistance. And so you want to meet that resistance in a way, because it means you're getting somewhere. Okay, next. Sometimes I come across a story that's uh, beyond parody and makes me feel yet again like we're living in a simulation, like things aren't real. i felt that many times over the past, like, year or so. Um, probably, probably since 2016 I've felt that multiple times. So anyway, this is one of those stories. Jamie Dimon was kneeling in front of a giant bank vault on CNBC, and, you know, presumably he's doing it as, like, Me, bro. Not trying to say anything here, but I think I'm pretty woke. Me, bro. I care about black lives. I think black lives matter, bro. Look at me kneeling. I think what happened to George Floyd was wrong. Congrats, Jamie. You think murder's wrong. Wonderful. Good for you. (laughs) Yes, I agree. Murder's wrong. Now, uh, of course, what's happening, guys, and I've seen this so much over the past few days there's this attempt of, like, corporate America to get in on the movement in a way because then they think that gets them, like, societal and cultural brownie points and then people will like their products more. Like, it's cynical. Of course it's cynical. And I've just seen so many brands kind of jump in on it. Now, the counter argument is, well, wouldn't you rather have them be on the right side than be on the wrong side? And I guess my answer, putting Jamie Dimon aside for a second, I'll get to him more, but – I guess, like, I guess it's better. I saw, like, a statement from Gushers saying Black Lives Matter, and I'm like, Gushers? <laughs> what are you doing? So, like, I guess it's better to have them on the right side. But, and here's the point, the reason why they're willing to do this is because they think, if I, if I align on on the social stuff, well, then maybe I can get away with all the economic stuff I do. So a lot of these corporations that are pretending to be all, all Wokesville on us, you know, there was a great thread from respectable lawyer on Twitter where he was saying like, this company makes their products, you know, through Cambodian sweatshop labor. <laughs> this company, you know, has effectively slaves and, and child labor happening in this, in this area. And so it's like, yeah, a company might say, oh, I'm down with the struggle or whatever, but then they pay minimum wage, which is which nobody could live on, and so the people who work for them are devastated. So it's like you always got to be careful when you have these giant corporations like get in on a movement or something because it's like, well, obviously, fundamentally, this is a cynical ploy. If they thought for a second it was more advantageous to be on the opposite side of it, they would be on the opposite side of it. So it's all about – it's all like a, a, a gross calculation behind the scenes. It's nothing about as principled or, or anything like that. And, um, again, they'll concede on the social stuff as long as you don't come after them economically. Right. The second you try to stop their outsourcing of jobs and their using of slave labor and, and their low wages, then all of a sudden they, you know, they go in the other direction. So but anyway, back to Jamie Dimon. Jamie Dimon, pretending to be, like, down for the struggle, this guy's a criminal. This guy's the biggest looter of them all, as Warren Gunnell said. So his bank was fined $13 billion for mortgage fraud, $614 million for predatory lending practices, $55 million for discrimination, $31 million for illegally foreclosing on military families, And this was all while he got a $416 billion bailout that allowed him to become a billionaire. So he's a looter. He's a corporate socialist. He's robbing from regular people. He's stealing from regular people so that he has his wealth. And then he thinks he's some sort of super genius as a result of it. And, oh, he'll give you all you want. Oh, you want me to pretend to be down with the struggle? Oh, I'll, I'll do that. As long as you don't, know, you know, don't question my $416 billion bailout. Don't question my role in helping collapse the economy in 2008. Don't question the fact that I'm a Wall Street fraud and criminal. It's disgusting, man. Oh, it's so disgusting. So um, there you have it. Some of the worst looters in the country, some of the worst criminals in the country, the financial criminals, the white-collar criminals they're now uh, pretending to be totally about a left-wing life and positive change. All right, let me do one more, and then we'll call it a day. let me do one more beach so there was an interesting moment that happened the other day that split the left a little bit at least on twitter this was this was bizarre so mitt romney of all people tweeted Black Lives Matter, and then you see he was he's wearing a mask here, but he's, uh, you know, marching in a protest in Washington, D.C. So I saw a lot of takes that, you know, people were saying, like, hey, guys, this is a W. Just take it. Like, you can't tell right-wingers, Republicans, whatever, like, you need to be on our side, and then the second they come on your side, be like... Pfft. How dare you come to my side? So there was a lot of a lot of that going on. People saying, just you know, if we're ever going to make change, we need to actually sway some people on the right. And this is an instance of that. So why would you not like why'd you be against it when it happens? Like that was probably 50% maybe a little bit more of the takes on, on my Twitter timeline. But then there were others that were just like, well, this is just a cynical ploy, obviously he doesn't actually mean anything by it and for me so so this is the this is what it comes down to this is the real test the test is okay mitt what are you going to do policy wise cuz he's a senator he's a senator so and some people responded to him there and said great now will you support the demilitarization of police see that's the real test he could tweet black lives matter he could, he could march in the protest. If people want to say, okay, that's a good indicator of what he might do, okay, fair enough. But the cynical view is, no, he'll say that and he'll tweet that, but then he, he will not do anything in terms of policy. So that's the real test. I'll reserve judgment until, unless and until we know where he stands on the policy issue. But if Mitt Romney really wants to get actual credit from the left, he would come out for the campaign zero reforms. So end broken windows policing, do community oversight of the police, limit the use of force that they could use, independently investigate and prosecute officers, have community representation in police departments, have body cameras that film the police and they can't turn them off, a penalty of law, no excuses, uh, training towards de-escalation, end all for-profit policing, demilitarize the police, have fair police union contracts. And then the other thing is, end the drug war. Cut the budgets at least 50%, I'd say, because we spend so much more on policing than on, on welfare. Have a three strikes and you're out law for cops, where if there's three complaints of any kind of abuse of authority, gone. And also, my new favorite, the police the police law, which is this idea that if you have one police officer who's committing an egregious crime and others are just standing around watching that officer, the ones who are standing around watching it and not stopping them can get found guilty of the crime that the officer is committing. So that makes them all accountable, and so they will stop one another because they don't want to go to jail if they see one of their buddies cracking a skull or committing murder or whatever it might be. Um, It's a way to totally change the way things work at the moment, which is just totally unacceptable. So if Mitt Romney, even if Mitt Romney comes out for two of those things I just listed, well then of course I'll give him credit. Of course I will, because to me it's all about policy. That's what matters. The end-all, be-all in the conversation is policy, because that's the idea of politics. Let's try to change society for the better through policy. So if Mitt Romney comes out for one or two of those you know, various police reforms, okay, then you give him a whole bunch of credit. But if he doesn't, then yeah, everybody's being a little bit of a sucker by giving him credit for saying Black Lives Matter when he's not going to change anything. Because like I told you guys in a previous segment, the first thing they cave on is the symbolism. The first thing they cave on is the symbolism. Because nothing hinges on the symbolism. It's good that you pull down the Confederate statues, that's wonderful. But that's the first thing they're going to give in on, because they could still keep policing exactly as it is and pull down the Confederate statue. So Mitt Romney could march and say Black Lives Matter, but then that's it. And then it's like, okay, did you win anything? No. He's just being a politician in that respect. But, again, I'll reserve judgment until we see what he does with policy. Maybe he will come out for one or two of the things or sign on to another bill that has some of these ideas in there. But either way, you know, this was a big story that kind of split people. And on that note, we are done, baby. I love you guys. I will talk to everybody soon. Stay safe out there from COVID. And if you're going to protest, wear a mask and socially distance. I'm out, y'all. Peace.